0: If you're shopping for a mortgage, contact PACFI, a mortgage brokerage with the top wholesale lenders in the nation. They are committed to simplifying the mortgage process, saving you time and money. Call 858-442-7048 or visit pacfi.com, NMLS number 1462943, Equal Housing Lender. This podcast is also brought to you by Instant Imprints. Promote better with Instant Imprints. Instant Imprints are Boise's visual communications experts and your place for everything you need to promote your business, club, school, or group. As a locally-owned business, Instant Imprints specializes in making your organization more visible with custom-branded apparel, embroidery, promotional items, print services, and wide format printing for signs, as well as banners and vehicle graphics. Want better ways to get noticed? Visit Instant Imprints at instantimprints.com Boise or call 208-IMPRINT. That's 208 467 Seven four six eight. Welcome to the alcohol tipping point. I'm your host Debbie Maizner, and I, for once, have someone in the studio with me today. Uh, my guest is Bo Payne, and thank you, Bo, for coming here. Can you just introduce yourself for our audience?
1: Yeah, thank you, Deb, for having me so much. I'm really glad to be here. It's a beautiful studio too. Um, so uh like I said, my name is is Bo Payne. I am a recovering alcoholic and an addict. I've been clean and sober for uh, just about five years now, coming up on five years. And uh, you know, I have a backstory like everybody. I've um I was drafted a couple times uh by the Marlins, the Brewers to play professional baseball years and years ago. Uh I've been to the state penitentiary a couple times, uh had a lot of highs and lows in life. Um like I said, we all have a backstory. um uh, clean and sober just about five years. so uh, uh, years ago, I just decided to make a turnaround. and uh, I just kind of do my best to share the goodwill and share the the hope that there is redemption in people and and uh, and here I am. So I'm glad to be here. thank you, so
0: yeah, much. well, thanks for coming in. I really appreciate yeah, it. yeah,
1: yeah,
0: um, so I kind of feel like we need to go back to the the begin- like how how did it? all start for you, your relationship with alcohol and addiction?
1: Sure. Um, that's a fantastic question and it's, it's actually something that I think a lot of alcoholics and addicts kind of need to get to the root of. I know I certainly needed to get to the root of before I was able to really tackle, um, what was, what was making me drink and use drugs and those kind of things. So um, I, I want to preface this by saying I, I don't live in victimhood. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a victim. I've had, I've, I've been victimized very badly as a child and, and things like that. But there comes a point in time where um, those things kind of cease to have control, and they have to become a moot point if I'm ever going. I, we, alcoholics in general, have to move on with our lives. So uh, having said that, um, <clears throat> I had a very rough childhood. I... Uh, not on the outside. We, we had money. We were middle to upper class. Um, you know, my mother has a doctorate from Tulane in, uh, in New Orleans. And my father has an MBA from Vanderbilt in Nashville. And I have a, uh, uh, what do you call it? A GED from an Idaho state penitentiary on the South side of town in CUNA. But, um, so my parents, uh, we grew up in the South as a little kid. I'm from Tennessee. I was born in Tennessee and they divorced when I think I was four. Uh, my dad went to Dallas. Um, he's a Vietnam veteran and brought back a lot of real violent issues with him from Vietnam. I wasn't born yet when he came back, but, um, so I had a very turbulent childhood growing up and, and I witnessed a lot of violence, um, a lot of infidelity, just the way my father treated women in, period, in, in general and my mother and. And so he was leaving us, and, and a few years later, they got back together, and we moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, in Canada. And I must have been seven by then. And by that time, I was starting to play T ball, um, you know, little Pop Warner football, flag football, just like little kids do, you know. And I was always kind of the best guy on the team, and my dad was the coach. And, um, and he started to, and this is when things started to go really bad for me in my, in my household living. He, uh, I understand parents wanting, you know, their children to succeed. And I mean, we're all, you know, competitive and we're proud of our kids and this and that. But my father took things to a different level that years down the road, I finally, with the help of, you know, outside help and a few different doctors at the VA hospital and, and things like that, um, that I really started to look into that I, I realized that affected my, uh, my life into uh, a grown man. You know, I'm 48 years old and really it was only till about age 42 that I started becoming confident and and comfortable in my own skin and and such and things like that. So um, not to talk too much on that, but uh, there was a lot of violence in my house. Uh, I would do very well at a game. Um, It was just never enough. You know, I was always told I'm an embarrassment you're no good. You're pathetic. You're pitiful. Nobody likes you. Everybody. Uh, the the big thing with my father is always telling me that I embarrassed him in front of all these people. And I'm like, well, I'm nine years old, and I just had 35 points and 15 rebounds at a basketball game. And and how in the world is that embarrassing you? <laughs> you know. And there would be instances where he would take me into, you know, years and years ago, they used to have these old gross, grungy gas station bathrooms. Um, not to get too graphic on your show, but just, you know, kind of, and he would bring me at halftime as an 11, 12 year old across the street or to the nearest bathroom, slap me around, dunk my head in toilets, flush the toilets on my head, bring my head up and, and, and tell me what a disgrace I was. And this is like, I'm like an 11 or 12 year old kid. And, and there was a lot of violence in my house too. A lot of physical stuff, Um, you know, punching and throwing and kicking and all that stuff. And he used to We'd come back from baseball tournaments for example at midnight um, 20 30 miles outside of uh, where we lived and he would kick me out of the car at midnight as a young kid and of course there's no cell phones back then you know and and he'd say find your own way home and and I guess this was his twisted way of trying to mold me into some strong man or something and I'm you know, I did the exact opposite, and I'm just sitting out. And then he would swing around and say, you want in the car? And I'd say, well, yes, I do. I'd like to go home, please. I'm scared to death. It's midnight. And, and he would take off again and play these mind games with me when I was a young child. And, and so moving forward, um, the physical stuff got to be the norm, and I accepted it. But I did not realize how emotionally scarred and destroyed I was. Um, until years and years later. And that really set the foundation of why I started to drink and, and use drugs. And I started to drink when I was probably 11 or 12. Very um, young. Yeah, very young. Very young. Um, and, and, and again, I I'm, I don't live in victimhood. I'm not excusing anything, you know, because I, there comes a point in time in an alcoholic's life where I think that we have to take personal responsibility. If If we're sick, then it's incumbent upon us to do something about it. But this is just kind of a, the foundation of what started my my career, I guess, in in the, the drinking area, for lack of a better word. And so I drank to hide a lot of feelings. I drank because I was scared to death. Um, I drank because I had no confidence. I, I couldn't talk. I didn't know how to talk to girls. You know, I didn't know how to. I was just so scared of what would happen to me at home if I didn't have a perfect game and you know, any kind of sport that I played, hockey, baseball, soccer, basketball, I mean, you name it, it just, nothing was ever good enough, you know, I could have been Michael Jordan, and uh, uh, he would have found something to beat me over, and so it just became a way to numb out everything, and um, and it talks about some of the literature that I'm involved in, um, about alcohol being the great elixir, you know, it, it's like we've arrived, We and so when I drank, I felt cooler, better looking, smoother. I felt like I fit in. I didn't feel weird. You know, I didn't feel like an outcast. I felt like I could communicate with people and be one of one of the one of the guys or one of the crowd. And and it's funny because I always had this double life where people kinda looked at me on the outside and didn't know really what was going on in inside my house and the things that I was dealing with. And they thought that I had a great life and there was this, this kid who's an athlete and he's got all this stuff and and inside I was just absolutely destroyed and uh, I was I was a scared timid kid who was scared of my own shadow and that really lasted up until probably like I said my early 40s and a lot of rehabs and a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff you know trying to figure things out and when I finally figured out that I've got a lot more problems than just my drinking um, is when I started to get better yeah so that's kind of a kind of a I guess the foundation of what started my drinking is to, is to make me feel better about myself. you know.
0: Yeah. And so you started at an early age just mm-hmm. to numb the pain and, and yeah. just to kind of definitely as a coping mechanism in that world you were living in. And, um, I mean, you bring up such a good point. You never, you don't know what someone's going through. You can't tell by the outside you, here you are in a, you know, regular successful family, probably the star jock of yeah. your high school and um and all that was going on.
1: It's it's something I like to um I, I love it when folks like you you know ask me to maybe speak or do things like that because one of the things that I'm so passionate about is because I I have been to prison for a couple of times. I've probably been incarcerated about nine years out of the last 23 for various, you know, DUIs and drinking things. And, and it takes all types, you know, there's, there's clean cut, educated people that have made mistakes who are addicts or alcoholics. There's the other side of the tracks, there's everything in between. And, and I've really worked hard over my life um, to get away from the stigma of, of, judging people. I think we're all prejudged or we all judge people to an extent. I mean, that's human nature, but I've just seen so many different, you know, from every race, creed, sex, gender, religion. I mean, what, what have you that have suffered from this insidious disease that it, alcoholism and addiction doesn't care what you look like, where you're from, what your socioeconomic status is in life. It has one goal and that's to kill you. And, um, and I just—it bothers me when people are are judged, you know, um, when people make snap judgments on people and say, "Oh, what a piece of this and that." Look at him. Oh, he's in trouble again, or this and that and I said, "Well, you don't know what people have gone through, and you don't know what makes people tick, and you don't know why people have done the things they do." And I had a guy the other day ask me, say, "Well, you look like kind of a normal guy, clean-cut guy, and you look like you know you had a lot of things, and you were a, an athlete, and and I." He so said, why did you drink? And, you know, he says, I just can't wrap my head around it. And I explained a little bit to him, but, but I can't wrap my head around it is what a lot of people understand. It's not just me. It's a lot, a lot of us. Um, you know, I'm sure maybe you've experienced some of that yourself, um, you know, but so you never can tell. So I just like to have, you know, let people keep, you know, remind them, keep an open mind of what, what you don't know about people and what they may have been through.
0: Yeah. Um, and even how you feel about your own self. Oh, like I Uh. can't wrap my, you know, just like you said, like, I can't wrap my head around the fact that I'm, that I have a problem It's for a while there. Like, so what, so you tell me more about just kind of your journey then, um, you, you got drafted to, I mean, you obviously were a very talented, uh, baseball player and athlete in other sports, it sounds like, um, what kind of happened? What was the trajectory of your life then or ha- around high school? You mentioned you ended up getting your GED.
1: Sure. Uh, great question. So um, I actually ended up getting my GED about six or seven years ago. <laughs> I, I um, So I was in Vancouver, BC, up until probably age 15. Uh, and I was becoming a known baseball player. And I was, I was very talented and, and, uh, had a, if I had done things differently, had a, had a career waiting on me, definitely. Um, which didn't pan out, but, uh, it's, it's led to a lot of other neat things in my life too. So anyways, uh, I moved to Miami, Florida, and, uh, I lived in Vancouver for about 10 years. I am a U.S. citizen, like I said, so, uh, moved to Florida to play on a better baseball team and a bigger high school. And it's, it's kind of the epicenter of a lot of big time baseball stuff going on down there. And plus who doesn't want to live and have their toes in the sand in December and 80 degrees. Um, so you can imagine what it's like for a 16 year old kid in Miami, Florida with a cocaine addiction and a serious alcohol addiction. (laughs) And, uh, things went a little haywire for me. Um, I juxtaposed this life of trying to keep up this one side of uh this this good athlete who's gonna either go pro out of high school or go to a big-time college with this other life of um you know spending it you know it sounds fun like oh you drive to the keys every weekend you know or go to south beach and this and that but but it's not I, i there's nothing glamorous about that life the life i was living was living in the uh you know spending my time in the ghettos of of miami and, and buying crack cocaine at age 16 and, and, uh, you know, and it just, it just became too much. And so I ended up becoming, uh, academically ineligible. I just flunked out of school. I got in some trouble. Uh, got kicked out actually flunked out, kicked out, whatever you want to say. And I lost my draft status. So I was ineligible to be drafted. Um, so I moved back to Vancouver with my mom and I went to a junior college in California, uh, called College of the Siskius in in a small little town in Northern California um, ended up playing baseball there um and it's funny you know I'm 48 now and, and this was probably age 19 and uh, I was really really talented pitcher you know I threw hard I threw 93 94 miles an hour um, when I was in shape but the problem was you know and that's first second round draft material you know that's big bucks back then this is 93 94 92. Uh, 19, in the 90s, but then, you know, five, six days later, and I'm not sure how much you know about baseball or whatever, but you start a starting pitcher pitches every five days. So the next five days, it would be my turn to pitch again, and my velocity on my pitches would be 10, 12 miles an hour slower than what they were, and that's because I was drunk all week, and my arm was hurting, and I looked like absolute hell. And, and so the scouts and, and the organizations, they – they wonder, like, what's wrong with this guy? He's, he's, he doesn't take anything serious. He's, so nobody wants to really invest any money. You know, it's, it's like any organization. You don't want to invest money in, in an employee who's going to be drunk all the time on, on your dime. And So I ended up being a late-round draft pick and was offered a little bit of money and just nothing that I had uh, one time had aspired to. Or, or, and, uh, and I quit. I quit baseball for good and I uh, enlisted in the Army. So um, I went from a potential first, second, third-round pick to a very late-round pick um, and squandered everything away baseball-wise because of drugs and alcohol. Yeah.
0: And and so then you decided to go into the Army.
1: Yes. That's...
0: Which is another, like, <laughs> big drinking culture.
1: It's huge.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, tell me about that experience. Yeah, no
1: problem. So... Um, it's so funny. I had this just such an odd relationship with my father. He was so abusive to me for so long, and yet I longed for his appreci- His, his, his. Uh, what's the word? Approval. Yeah, yeah. His, his yeah. A, his approval. I mean, it's, it's just so, you know, diametrically opposed to the, you know, to one another. Someone treats you so horribly, yet you long for their approval. And so, anyways, he was an infantry officer in, in, in the army in, in, in Vietnam, and he was actually a very good officer and a very good soldier, and, and decorated. Fought two tours and um so I went in the army and I went in the infantry because I thought that that would make him proud of me and uh like you said it's it's just a massive drinking culture <laughs> you know and especially in the infantry because we're a bunch of a bunch of guys who think we're so strong and tough and we're so proud of being you know airborne and and this and that which to an extent is good because that's what you want out of the you know the the people who represent your country and fight war you want tough people you know but um again my drinking just took over everything you know and it just uh you know there would be the guys who would drink all night and go home and sleep and get up in the morning and be ready to go and i would be the guy who would drink and not go home and continue to drink and continue to drink and i would get in trouble and i would show up not you know drunk on duty and get in trouble they call them article 15s in the army and um i stayed in for three years and then I was kindly asked to leave. <laughs> but
0: you weren't like discharged. Or... I was
1: honorably discharged. Okay. Yeah, I was honorably discharged. Um, I went through a lot of neat schools: airborne school, air assault school, stuff like that. And I was very dependable when we went to the field or we we went somewhere um, because I was a strong guy and I and I just took pride when I did. But when we were not in the when we were back in in the barracks or we had downtime, I was an absolute terror. I was just a wreck, and I was. Uh, in trouble. And that's when kind of my brushes with the law started happening. And, and the, the army got fed up with the the powers that be. And they said, Hey, you need to change or you have to go. (laughs) And I tried to change. And that was the first time I ever went to rehab was in 96 for, for 60 days. And that was my introduction to, uh, to recovery.
0: And was that, do you feel, I mean, that was a while ago, but do (laughs) you, um, I guess this could be a two-parter, but as far as how the military treats mental health and addiction, you were active and they sent you to, um, rehab through the military. Is that right?
1: Yes. I had gotten a DUI, uh, in 1996 I was at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. So this was right on the state line of Tennessee. So close to Nashville and, <clears throat> and, uh, So anyways, yes, I got a DUI, spent a couple days in jail down there in Tennessee, and then they said, go to rehab or you're going to get kicked out. So I said, oh, okay, I don't want to get kicked out. So I went to rehab. Um, But the Army is very, I think they've, I'm not as in touch with what's going on, I guess, you know, 20-something years later. But back then it was, there wasn't a whole lot of, it was a lot of lip service, like, well, just go do this and come back. And there's no aftercare or anything like that. No one's really in touch with what. How do I put this? um, they really didn't care back then. They just said, "Stop or you're out you know and, and and that's not you have to get to the root core of issues of why people do the things they do um in order to to get better so um, I don't think they cared as much back then for people's mental health. I think because of the wars in Iraq and afghanistan and and other places, I think that awareness is through the roof now and i and I love to see it because there's you know soldier and marine. And you know other branches of the service, the suicide rate isn't just incredibly high compared to normal civilian rate. Um, the incarceration rate of the United States penitentiaries are nine to ten percent of U.S. servicemen and service women, compared to two percent of the population. That you know, I didn't so it's, know that. That's insane. interesting. That's yeah. Insane. So um, I'm always kind of advocating for people just to support veterans, whether you mm-hmm. support—I you know, don't care what you think about war, you know that stuff, but you can support the, the individual, the man or the woman as compared, you know, you don't have to support what's going on. But so I, I, I definitely advocate for that.
0: Yeah. yeah. My first nursing job was at the VA here. Oh,
1: the Boise VA is yeah. a fantastic hospital. It's probably the best VA that I've ever been to. Good. That's yeah. nice
0: to hear. So, um, so, so <coughs> that 60 days did was anything helpful during that rehab?
1: Yes. Ton of it was. It set the stage for, um, my life today, as, as I know it, you know, I, I, it didn't take obviously right away. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure how much time we have, so I'll kind of condense things, but, um, I, uh, so I went to a 60 day rehab in a hospital in Augusta, Georgia at Fort Gordon. And, um, and I knew I had a problem. You know, I knew I, I knew I was completely powerless over this stuff, but I always thought I could control it eventually. You know, I could. I can go out and get drunk for a couple nights and that'll be it. But, um, and later in my life, I, two nights of me drinking led to two months, led to two years, led to, you know, so it just, it's progressive, but, um, but it did set the stage or I guess it, um, for me knowing, cause I walked into an AA meeting, they made us go to AA or they, you know, as part of the program. And I walked into an AA meeting and I saw all these people, um, laughing and smiling and you know, white people, black people, men, women, I mean, all these different, you know, chasms of, or chasm, you know, just different parts of society, all just kind of getting along. And I was like, wow, this is such a cool looking little society, you know what I mean? And they were all there for one reason. And that was to, to help each other get sober and to stay sober. And, you know, I didn't hear anything about politics. I didn't hear any, you know, the stuff that all the, the Peripheral stuff that we hear nowadays you know that kind of dominates the news cycle and all the division that I guess we've had in the country so much and I stay out of that stuff but my point is is that a lot of that stuff was left at the door and everybody just kind of was there to to encourage each other and help each other and I said wow I felt like the first time I ever drank you know I felt like I had found my crew my tribe and uh, of course it didn't take um 60 days was up and I was on fire. I was like, oh, sober, sober, sober. And I was spreading the word. And and uh, I remember getting on a plane and going back to my unit from Georgia to Kentucky. And there was a thunderstorm in Mississippi. So the sea, we were on a C-130 and we had to ground the plane and stay overnight in Tupelo, Mississippi. Or excuse me, uh, Biloxi, Mississippi. And that night I was at the NCO Academy getting drunk. And... You know, so it didn't, you know, so I've learned to listen a lot more than talk. <laughs> you know, back then I thought I knew it all, 60 days sober and yeah. thought I could tell everybody how to do it. And, and uh, that led to a long time, a lot of in and out of rehabs and stuff. But, um, but that set the stage for me really, under, really feeling like, you know, gosh, I haven't had this feeling that I belong since the first time I ever took a drink when I was probably you know, 11 years old or so. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, well, they say the opposite of addiction is community.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the fellowship, community, I mean, there, there's a saying that I love to say, and, you know, I steal stuff out of literature and, um, but we, we have to do together what we can't do by ourselves. And, and I tried for so long to, to, to to quit on my own, you know, and because I, I, I guess I had such false pride or arrogant pride, or I, I thought I was, tougher, or better than, I said, I don't need this, or I mean, you know, and I just kept falling flat on my face, and and finally, you know, in 2016, I just gave in, you know, and, I, and when I say gave in, I mean that in a positive way, I, I, I stopped fighting everything and anything, and, and just said, I'm just going to do what I've seen other people do uh, to, to better their lives, and to get sober, and like I said, it's, you know, I tried from 96 to 16 to do it my way, and it didn't work, and I've done it a different way for the last five years. And I've had, you know, infinite success and, but, but the, but the success that I've had that I measure success by is my inner success and my inner feelings about myself and not the size of my bank account or, you know, and, or just things like that. You know, the relationships that I've established or reestablished with my family, with my mother, with my, my sister, with, you know, I, I had a recent bout of COVID, as you know, and I was really, really sick with the Delta variant, and I had just a million people every day call me, text me, are you okay, can I bring you something, um, you know, do you need anything, and and, and it's just completely foreign to me before I got sober, because people would never, ever want anything to do with me, and I like to say everybody left me, but the truth is I pushed everybody away. They didn't leave me. I, I gave them no choice, because by my, the way I was when I was drinking all the time, so life is infinitely better. <laughs> yeah. Know. Yeah.
0: Well, what was different then in 2016? Yeah,
1: yeah, sure. No problem. I had, uh, um, been in involved in the, the, the department of correction of the judicial system for a long time in and out. Um, and, uh, I have two beautiful children. They're in their twenties now. Um, and I just, I had to just, you know, I just had to take stock of my life and, and I knew that I still had a lot of ability to do some really good things in life, but I knew that none of that stuff was going to be ever possible if I continued to drink. And the pain for me, it wasn't a "what was me" pain. I'm in a jail cell or a prison cell, or I'm homeless, or in a, you know, in a union gospel mission shelter. And it wasn't anything like that. It it was a, the pain for me, hurting other people. Got worse than the pain for me hurting myself, and I started to I I started to break down and cry all the time. You know, I would look around and I would just have these fits of crying because I would have these overwhelming waves of guilt and shame by the way that I, the broken promises to my children, and uh, the way that I, uh, you know, the the lost relationship with my mother, who by the way is like my best friend in the world today, and you know, I I don't I used to get emails every once every few months from her in prison, just, you know, just saying, hi, hope you're well, mom, that would be it. And now we talk all the time. And if I get an email, she's like, Hey, did you see the, the, the college football rankings came out? And she's a big fan, you know, and, and we talk and she ends her emails with, I love you and I'm proud of you. And she's 76, 77. And who knows how much time we have left with our loved ones. So the relationships that I've cultivated with people are the most important things to me in my life, without a doubt.
0: Can I ask um, about your relationship with your dad?
1: Sure. Yeah, there's uh, there's not a lot to talk about there, honestly. Um, he lives in Europe. He lives in Montenegro. Oh. Um, he's lived in Peru before that a long time, in South America. Then I think he went to Colombia. Um, I actually worked for him back in the 2000s. He he had a, a, a corporate recruiting outfit and, and i was in in the midst of a couple year run of sobriety this was in bellevue washington seattle area kirkland bellevue um and uh we always kind of had a we just never talked about the stuff that happened as a kid because it was a financial relationship i was a good worker i was sober ish <laughs> at the <laughs> time he was my boss and uh the last time i saw him was in a denver airport where he tore up my boarding pass and left me there and uh you know, we had gotten an argument. We were doing a job in Houston, hiring some people, flying back through Denver into Seattle, and uh, this was 2007. And uh, you know, I, I, I can't even remember. My sister and I were even talking about this the other day. But but he he tore up my boarding pass and said, "You know, find your one way home again." And I'm like, "Wow, I've heard that one a million times before," <laughs> and uh, I haven't haven't heard from him since. It's been probably 15 years. So. um we don't talk. I've done a, I've you know, done some extensive work on my relationship with him and come to a, a place of neutrality where I'm not mad at him, nor do I like him or care for him. Uh, I don't want to speak for my family members or other people, but he's just not a uh, he's not a factor in my life anymore. And he 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 really um, ran my life for a long time without even physically having anything to do with me, but he, he was an albatross around my neck, by the way, the things he did to me. Uh, but I have worked very hard not to let those things affect me anymore. And, uh, a, a lot of kids go through what I went through. It's not just, you know, me. And, and so that's why I like to, you know, children shouldn't have to be affected 30 years later after they're 10, 12 years old. You know, I mean that it literally destroyed the first half of my life. And again, I'm not blaming it on him. I'm just saying that it's just tough. It was very tough, and it led to some really deep, dark, lonely times. Um, so I don't really have any wanting to have any relationship with him. Um, I, I don't hate him. I just don't have any feelings for him, to be honest with you. Yeah. It's just, it's just a guy.
0: Which is, you know, more of a, a neutral place, like you said.
1: Yeah. yeah. And it's a nice place, too, because I don't have to get mad. I don't like to be mad at people. I don't like to have hate in my heart for people. I mean, we're human, and we can dislike things or not approve of, you know, there's people probably won't approve of me, you know, still for the things I've done in the past. But I can't worry about that kind of stuff. And But I certainly don't want to walk around life every day having hatred in my heart for things that I can't control. I can't control the guy. He has no power over me anymore but he doesn't really mean anything to me anymore. So it's like, why do I even, why would I even want to waste my time thinking about him? I've done a lot of work on my relationship with him as a child and and moving forward and and it's over now. And uh, I'm in a really good place and a good state of mind. and, And there's no reason for me to revisit any of that. You know, I just, I'm not into name calling and, you know, I it just it is what it is, and we don't have a relationship, and, and and I'm more than okay with that because the family members that I do have a relationship with are wonderful people, fantastic people. They love me, I love them, and uh, and that's what I care about the
0: most. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious because my only my vice was alcohol, um, and you mentioned that drugs were an issue for you too. Did you feel like what like was alcohol your biggest issue or like how was it different kind of quitting drug use versus alcohol use or kind of talk about that a little bit more
1: yeah no problem um so I'm an alcoholic first and foremost alcohol is my drug of choice um they've had so many different scientific names for it over the years you know poly drug abuse which means you know you You like everything, I guess, you know, and I uh, have done pretty much every drug known to man and been addicted to it. Um, You know, I've, I've been addicted to heroin, to crack cocaine, to methamphetamine, to, you know, I, I just, I, I come from the camp of my, of if it it was in front of me, I would, I would smoke it, shoot it, eat it, snort it, drink it. Um, And there's, unfortunately, that's just the way that my DNA, I guess, is made up. But generally it all started with me through alcohol. And, uh, so alcohol is, is, has been my worst demon over the years, but it would lead to, so just to give you an example, um, I would go out to the bars as, you know, late twenties, um, with my buddies and we would drink and, and have a, have fun and watch a ball game, shoot pool, you know, just, just doing what young people do at the bars, I guess, you know, and they would all go home at one or two when it closed and, you know, some were married and you know, some weren't, but they'd get up and go to work. I would go to the worst part of town at two in the morning, look for crack cocaine. And I would, you know, I think I may have worked at Nordstrom or someplace like that. So I had a suit on or, and I would be wor- walking through the, wor- <laughs> the worst parts of the big cities, you know, sticking out like a sore thumb at two 33 in the morning with a Hugo Boss suit on, <laughs> you know, like, wow, what's that? Gee, I wonder what that guy's doing in this part of town for. And I would just walk up to people and, and, and buy drugs from them. And then I would, uh, because the the feeling is just, oh, it's so overpowering. And then I would go to a hotel or a, a more of a motel, a rent for a week, a week type of flea bag motel for a week and wouldn't be heard of for five or six days. And, and uh, I would blow thousands of dollars and I would be homeless and I would have nowhere to go and uh, I would end up in a homeless shelter, I've, you know, places when it got cold, you know. I remember in Spokane, uh, I knew this night security guard at a post office who let me sleep in there from 2 till 6 a.m. before it opened again, and, you know, I've stayed, I've slept in alleys and missions and uh, jails and prisons and, and crack houses, and, and I've also, you know, got myself together and done well, and, and had some nice digs, too, you know, so it's, that's what I talk a lot about. You can never judge people for what they've done. And and my the rabbit hole, my story goes a lot further than what, what I've kind of said. But I uh, I got to the point, honestly, and I'm not sure how much, you know, I, I again, not too graphic, but I, I was so destroyed by drugs and alcohol that I was doing things for them mm-hmm. and letting people do things to me for them. And uh, men and women, both, uh, they just became not human beings. They became a conduit to get the drugs or get the alcohol I didn't look at them as I mean I was just a dead soul walking yeah and would do anything that I could possibly do to make it through the day
0: well and I think a lot of people associate that um walking through the alleyways and whatnot with yeah. like really big cities or LA or but you're talking Spokane Washington yeah. you're I mean Boise you could probably do that if you wanted right yeah,
1: I've, I mean I've 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 seen in Boise, yeah. I mean, it's on a smaller scale, but um, Spokane's a really rough town compared to – I don't think folks know that, and it's not a big town. It's probably the same as roughly Boise, you know, 200,000 in the city. Um, but, you know, I've also been to Seattle and, you know, back east and stuff like that. So it really doesn't wor- – wherever you go, there you are. You know, yeah. I mean, it's the problem's not going to go away. Whether you're in small town USA, middle of Nebraska, with four thousand people, or whether you're in New York City, you know, or or, or in between, um, you know, I had some tough times, and uh, you know, on the streets, and and uh, I was always one of the things that held me back is I would go to a VA rehab. I've been to rehab probably 15 times in my life, at least, and 28 day rehabs, and I would get better and And feel better and look better look healthier and 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 get my strength back, and then I would go back out and stay sober for a month and say, "Oh, I got this oh, I don't need this program anymore. man, I can do this. I'm looking better and feeling better let's go to the let's go to the bar and see see what I can do <laughs> three, four days later, I'm face down in the ditch somewhere, lost everything, you know, it just never ends with me as far as touching that stuff to my lips. So I guess sorry to be so long-winded, but when I touch alcohol to my lips, I can't stop. And that leads to everything that's ever been bad in my life, to drugs, to to you name it. So I'm an alcoholic first and foremost, yeah.
0: It seems like that's what you hear you know from most people with the poly substance uh. use disorder. Um, I mean, alcohol is that gateway <laughs> to say gateway no, but you know it like is. It,
1: for me it like, certainly was
0: tackling that just helped with the other drugs is that right or I guess because I, I don't to me it's new and interesting yeah
1: I I think that it's well you know I talked a little bit about when we started this uh that I drank because I I like to mask a lot of things, you know, or I, I like to, I, I did because it was a survival thing. You know, I I just, it's how I survived. Um, but, but I can't, um, I have to admit also that even, even today, even though I wouldn't know in five years, um, most men and women drink because we like the way it makes us feel too. You know, that's just the point of it, you know, it's, it, it makes us feel good. (laughs) Um, so I, I I drank a lot because it it made me feel good too the effects that it produced on me um, and then those side effects that came from that was you know I felt I felt cooler and smarter and and all this stuff too and more confident but um, and I liked the way that drugs made me feel too so you know I just I th- I don't know if it's my makeup my body makeup my DNA my you know I I do know that you know I was. You know, m- mentally obsessed with the stuff. Once I started drinking, I would have three or four or five drinks at a bar, and then the next thing I know, what you know, what I'm thinking of is, where can I get methamphetamine? Where can I go get cocaine? Um, Where my I, I, I look around, and see normal people having a few drinks, or even you know, having tying one on one night, you know, for once a month, or and 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 all I'm thinking about is how am I going to go get drugs for the night? And uh, I, c- I can't explain why. Um, but I but I can't explain how I don't do it anymore. So that's really
0: yeah, yeah. And and I think like your inhibitions are chemically lowered, and then you're always chasing the high. Absolutely, um,
1: that's a great point.
0: Gosh, you've been through a lot, Bo.
1: Yeah, but I you know I have a buddy, and he wouldn't mind me saying his name on air. Uh, his name is Julian Davis, and he lives in Hamilton, Ontario, just outside of Toronto, Toronto Ontario and i went to high school with him in bc and i think he's 16 years clean and sober um he's my age so he's 48 he was a, the worst of the worst you know he was part of my crew in high school and he ended up going to prison as a young man uh for for doing some things and just selling drug drug involved stuff and uh, you know, I was coming home from a meeting the other night, and I was riding on the green belt, and I, it was dusky, you know, and it was just real, real beautiful out, and I felt great. And I texted him, and we talk all the time, but I just said, "Hey, man, I'm just want to let you know, man, you're I'm really appreciative that you're in my life, dude." And and you know, and we've known each other thirty something years, and 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 I tell my friends this because I I talk about the relationships that I have, people, and you never know when someone's going to leave us. I've had a lot of people leave me and leave us and, and die, and I've seen, you know, and I for another time, but, and he said, Hey man, I I love you. And and I said, I want to tell you something. He said, people like you and I and and other people, addicts, alcoholics, um, yourself too, Deb. anybody, or, you know, anybody who's struggled with this stuff has gone through hell and back so we can help other people. And everything that has, you know, I've done in my life, he's done in his life. People have done in our, he, she, we, (laughs) you know, our lives are this is this beautiful tapestry of, of, of things that we don't have to look at it as negative. So it's all like like me sitting right here is where God has brought me to, in, in, in my opinion, and not to push some religious and stuff like that. And so it's now it's up to what, what do I do with the hand that I've been dealt? And, you know, mean, being a failure in baseball, well, when I shouldn't have, by all means, I, I, sh- I should have been a superstar, but I was a failure. So do I look at that as, oh, I'm a failure, woe is me, let's go drink over it, or do I look at it like, okay, I can turn this into a positive, I can flip the script, I can tell people my experiences, what not to do and what I have done now and what I do do on the daily, and then hopefully somebody can see that and say, wow, I don't have to go down that road too, or I felt like he did, or I felt alone, or I felt scared, or I felt insecure um and they don't have to feel like a failure and so I really believe that uh I I was put in a position to to share my story with other people and to help other people and uh, that for me brings me more satisfaction than than any any inning I could have thrown in the big leagues or anything like that so yeah
0: I mean it's great meaning and you're definitely helping people sharing
1: yeah it's it's kind of uh it's it helps me too you I mean, it's, it's just a really neat way of life. And it's, um, it's you know, I, I just really enjoy it. Yeah.
0: So what are your plans for the future?
1: Well, I've got a lot of, like I told you um, off air, I've got a lot of <laughs> health issues going on. So I've, I've got most likely a heart surgery coming up. Um, I have to have a valve replacement. And I have what's called a, an ascending aneurysm on my aorta, which I need to take care of. So that's going to be kind of a, a big undertaking, and the VA, I think, is going to fly me to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota next year. Um, uh, don't know quite yet. Maybe I can push it out a year or two max, but it, it's it's not a it's not an if it's it's a when. So we're just waiting to figure it out. Um, but uh, more right now, I'm, I'm back in school trying to finish my degree in sports management. Um, got about a year to go. Uh, it's, I've been piecemealing school since 92, (laughs) you know, um, I was talking to a friend last night. I I have to get my science done. And so I have to do physics this fall. I was like, oh my goodness, that word just scares me just thinking of it, you know, but, but I'll get it done. You know, I just, um, big part of my life is balance. It's, It's so huge. You know, when I don't have balance, I can't do anything, but when I do have balance and I'm structured and, uh, I, I generally can figure things out. So to finish school, um, I enjoy speaking in front of people and, you know, sharing my story and and uh, just kind of taking things day by day, and I've been doing that for years. And it's, uh, you know, I have a nice life. It's not filled with, you know, Mercedes-Benz and 5,000-square-foot houses and stuff, but I love my nice specialized bike that I rip around town in. And, <laughs> you know, it's so much fun, you know, and it's such a great city to ride your bike in, you know. And, and I love the green belt, and I've got a nice – tight knit group of friends that I spend time with. I go to a lot of ball games, Boise Hawks games, and <clears throat> I do some speaking stuff here and there, you know, and and uh and the sky's the limit. I just, you know, it's I, I don't know what's gonna happen with my future, but I know that that if I stay sober one day at a time, that that really what I want to do, um, will happen. Not can happen, but will happen. And uh I have no no doubt about it whatsoever so yeah we'll see but it's nothing whatever's going to happen is going to be good I can tell you that it's not going to be it's not going to be negative
0: well I believe you and And, uh, I can just see your like soul shining through Bo has really like bright blue eyes (laughs) (laughs) it could be your north face blue sweat. well they
1: were dead for a long time they were
0: I bet that yeah. you could really see it in your eyes and but yeah. like you said, more importantly, just how you feel and how you're helping others and how you're showing up. And thank you. Thanks for coming to the studio. Yeah,
1: I, I'm more than happy. More than happy to be here. It's it's a really neat, neat little studio too. Um yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I I'll uh just I wanna kind of close I guess with this um <clears throat> I never say no to anybody who asked me to to share to help or because I've had so much help over the years from other people that I, I feel it's very incumbent upon myself to to give of myself and I'm not trying to put myself on some moral high ground or anything it's 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 not hard to say absolutely I'll share speak help you know it, it's yeah it's, it's just what we do
0: perfect and, and, and so yeah. that yeah that reminds me how can people find you
1: yeah. Um, they can, uh, I'm on Facebook, just Bo Payne. Um, and you, it's B E. Uh, yes. B E A U P A Y N E. Um, you know, probably be some just baseball stuff or recovery stuff. And, and, uh, I'm on, I'm under, uh, the handle sober bow on IG on Instagram. And, um, yeah you can you can look me up that way and and uh you can google my name generally i'm on youtube there's some podcasts and kind of stuff about my life story and stuff like that too so yeah
0: super cool i'm grateful for
1: you thank you oh thank you thank you too deb i appreciate it thank you so much Hey everyone,
0: thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point. I'm always here for you guys, so please feel free to reach out and talk to me on Instagram at alcohol tipping point and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com. Again, I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, see you next time.